Welcome to the Food Junkies Podcast. Here, we aim to provide you with the experience, strength, and hope of professionals actively working on the front lines in the field of food addiction. The purpose of our show is to educate you, the listener, and increase overall awareness about food addiction as a disease with abstinence as the solution. Here, we talk about all things recovery. Most importantly, how to thrive rather than just survive. So stay positive, make a change for yourself, tell others about your change, and hopefully the message will spread. Hey, Food Junkies listeners, Molly here. I just want to give a huge thank you to each one of you in helping us get to 250,000 downloads. We're aiming for a million and we're already a quarter of the way there. Keep it up. Listen, rate, review, and share the podcast as many times as you want. I also want to take a moment to remind you that Dr. Vera Tarman's Sugar and Food Addiction course with Dr. Eric Westman's Adapt Your Life Academy will be live in September. So head over to the Adapt Your Life Academy website and get on the wait list today. Check the show notes or the Food Junkies podcast website for the link. All right, today, Dr. Vera Tarman and myself sit down with Dr. Debbie Donowski. In it, this episode, we cover the personal, her experience with inpatient treatment, food addiction recovery as a vegan, her 12-step experience, recovery today versus early days, uh, her books, kids and sugar, resistance to food addiction, working with the Food Addiction Institute and shift what's next. And so she answers our signature question. Welcome, Dr. Donowski. Okay. Hello, everybody. Welcome to the Food Junkies podcast. I am your host today, along with Molly Painshaw. Today, we are speaking with Dr. Debbie Donowski, a longstanding expert in helping people with both weight loss and food addiction. Over the last two decades, Dr. Donowski has worked as a freelance writer as well. She is a member of the advisory board of Food Addiction Institute. She is an associate professor of communication at Sacred Heart University in Connecticut. She is also, for our interest's sake, a recovering food addict, having sustained a weight loss of over 170 pounds for more than 30 years. Dr. Donowski's books are a staple for many personal, clinical, and food addiction educational venues. Just as a, 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 I'm just going to read off a few of them because there's a lot of them. The Overeaters Journal, Exercises for Heart, Mind, and Soul. Why Can't I Stop Eating? Recognizing, Understanding, and Overcoming Food Addiction. And Why Can't My Child Stop Eating? A Guide to Helping Your Child Overcome Emotional Overeating. Welcome, uh, Debbie. Thank you. Thank you for having me. Yeah, we're really pleased to have you. So let's start with the personal stuff. We always like to start with the personal, and then we'll sort of build into the professional and uh, and whatnot. So you stated that you are a food addict, um, and actually a hundred and what was it, hundred and you were actually three hundred and twenty eight pounds, and you have sustained weight loss of over thirty years. And people, this is a big deal in the obesity bariatric world where right now with the latest medication, there's a new one that just came out and they're so excited because they're saying you can lose up to 50 pounds. We have a solution where you can lose, well, here, 328 pounds and weight loss for over 30 years. So this is amazing. Anyway, what was your aha moment that made you find that solution? I was laying on the floor and I had just eaten something that I absolutely hated. I didn't want to eat it. And I was laying there crying because I had eaten it. I had been in therapy. I decided I was going to go to therapy for six sessions because I was in school at the time. And I just knew I couldn't stop and I didn't know what to do, but someone had gone, someone I knew had gone to a treatment center and she gave me the 
the name of it. And it all just came together, which I know was, you know, higher. <laughs> there, there were people, you know, looking out for me and, and, um, it, it worked out, but that that's my bottom was laying there crying because I had just, I hated what I ate, but it had sugar in it. And I just had, had to eat it. And you were 328 pounds, like at your max. Yeah. Yeah. Was, yes. So, so when was that? Was like, was, was that like in the eighties, nineties? Like- yeah. My, my actually, that was in the early 1989. And then I was in graduate school and I had to finish out that semester and then come back in the fall so that I could have insurance coverage from my dad to cover the treatment center. So I was in, I would say it was probably January or February when I kind of made the decision. And then I didn't go until July 3rd was my first day there. I had eaten the plain breakfast. So it wasn't my, my actual first day of abstinence was July 4th, 1989. Wow. July 4th, right on. Um, so, so, so in like 1989, uh, that was in the era of, uh, I mean, your story is very similar to mine in, in those early days, but you know, as you probably know, the, the prevailing thinking at that point was just um, eating disorders, but you took a food addiction model. So how did you know that this was not an eating disorder or what intuited you? in this era of eating disorders, that there was something else that needed to happen? I didn't know. I had no idea. I had tried every other thing and there was really just nothing left. I didn't know the difference between an eating disorder and food addiction. I didn't understand any of it. I was just led. I really believe I was just led to this treatment center. I I didn't even know what food addiction was until I got to the treatment center. And once I heard and, and it was made clear to me, I knew I didn't want to know and I denied it, but I knew inside. So can I ask you what the treatment center was? Because I think that's pretty important. Sure. It was Glen Bay. Um, Glen Bay. Ah, so you were actually one of Phil's patients, basically. Oh my I God, I, didn't know that. I, I actually thought it might have been core, but core, I guess, came a little later. So you were a Glen Bay baby. Wow. Yes. I and, and Phil was actually my family, my small family group counselor. And wow. I remember when they assigned me to him, I said, I have a man to myself. I was afraid to say anything to anybody. (laughs) And I said, I I have a man problem. Don't they know that? Why would they give me a man counselor? (laughs) And it turned out that he was amazing. Absolutely amazing. Okay. So for people who don't know, we we have a podcast uh, that where we interview Phil. So if you haven't listened, please listen. But for people who don't know, Glenn Bay was probably one of the first or maybe the first. I don't know if uh, Shades of Hope or um, if... uh, 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 recovery um, uh, my, milestones in recovery existed then, but I think it was one of the first that addressed food addiction, and and that was actually um, uh, tr- uh, funded by the government or funded by insurance. Uh, so you were one of the first people to be treated in a food addiction model. So so what was different about that model compared to what you were used to? And then obviously I'm going to ask about your books after that. Well, it it was different in, in in a few ways. First of all, weighing and measuring my food and taking the sugar and flour out was something I had never heard of. Um, I was used to just diets, you know, whatever the diet was of the day, that was what I did. And, and I think that was different, but also what was different was dealing with the emotions. You know, um, Phil was very big on doing anger work and the anger that was inside of me was unbelievable. And I don't think I would have gotten it out on my own. And I think I would have been similar to a dry drunk if I didn't go through treatment and, you know, and do all the things to get all the emotions to understand 
how really, really out of control my life was because it looked really good on the outside. I was a student in a graduate program and a great graduate program. And, you know, and, and it just looked good except for my weight. It looked good on the outside and it just looked like, oh, it's a little weight problem. And I realized it's a lot more than that. Can you, can you uh, describe uh, what a day in the life of a Glen Bay patient was? Like, how long were you there and what was your diet like? Just, just so, because people, I mean, inpatient recovery programs, you know, people are always asking about them. They want to know if they exist, what they're like. And so uh, just let us know just a day in the life of Debbie and Glenn. Sure. We got up at 6 a.m., which to me was the middle of the night because I didn't ever get up until noon. <laughs> You know, I was so hungover from meeting, but we got up at six and then we would have time to dress and get ready. And then we had to be in a circle, you know, a meditation circle in the morning, just sending good and positive energy out. Then a walk around the duck. I walked because I was so heavy that I, I couldn't do anything more than that. There were some people who had different exercise programs, but it was exercise breakfast by eight. And then it was um, group therapy in the morning, lunch at noon. And then it was different kind of therapy, like art therapy, or they called it forced fun, where we had to <laughs> do activities <laughs> that we weren't used to, you know, like a trust walk or something like that. And then we had um, dinner at five and then a meeting and then a snack at nine and lights out by 10. Right. Okay. And the, and the meals were weighed and measured uh, meals, right? Absolutely. Yeah. And it was like sort of the typical four ounce protein uh, eight or 12 or 16 ounces of vegetable, something like that. It was for women. It was three ounces of protein for men. It was, I think four, okay. it was, a, we did cups then because we didn't even have digital scales at that point, or if we did, they were very expensive and not readily available. So it was a cup of um, vegetables that were like salad vegetables, a cup of hot vegetables, a half a cup of starch, and then um, a cup or one fruit. And you could have up to two tablespoons of dressing and um, up to half a cup of certain condiments, but not like, you know, like, um, um, uh, like tomato sauce, but not like mayonnaise or anything. Yeah. yeah. And, and how long were you, how long was the program at that point? It was six weeks. Six weeks. Okay. And, and uh, did you find that being in sort of inpatient was useful, essential? Is it something that you would like to see continue? Or can you do it? I think it was the only thing that would have saved my life at that point. I don't think there was anything else that would have worked for me. I, I was terrified every minute. I, if you ask me, did I like it? I would say no. Was it necessary? Absolutely. And there's a, you know, there's a big difference there, yeah. but I, I don't know how I would have ever, I was at the point, you know, they told us when we walked in and I, I was offended because I was not in recovery at the point, but they told us that we were gutter level addicts. And if we were drug addicts, we would be impatient and we would be locked up. And, and that's what it was. I, I wanted to leave, but my insurance wouldn't cover any part of the stay. So the second I walked through that door, I forget what it was at that time. I think it was seven, $700 a day or something like that. I can't remember exactly, but so I had, I, I had no job. I was a student and my father bless his heart. That was the only time in his entire life that he ever set a strong boundary with me. And he said, I am not, I will pay to get you down there. And I will pay to bring you home. And beyond that, I will not pay. Mm -hmm. And so I felt like I really was locked up and trapped. And, and I needed that. I absolutely needed that. 
So, so, and, and I think you kind of implied that that, that when you went there, that was your last, so, so you have been sober since the doors that the day that you walked into those doors. So what does your recovery look like now? Do you still have a way to measure plan or like, like, what are you doing now? Oh, I still do the same thing. They said, when we, when we walked in your food plan is your food plan for life. And I, I really took that. The only difference for me now is to maintain the weight that I have working with my sponsor, we chose to take the snack at night out because it was just too much food. But beyond that, I mean, even being, I, I, I went, um, I'm a vegan now and I managed to make it work within the the amounts that, you know, that are there. And I worked with my sponsor to make sure that everything is still exactly, it's only within what was on my list originally. Yeah. So, so for people listening, that was called the metabolic, the thing at night that you took out. And Mm -hmm. I did not know that you were vegan, but I'm so pleased that you you're saying that because there's, you know, in this world of food addiction, we seem to have two sort of sides, the keto side and the vegan side. And it's just nice to hear that somebody is saying they can make food addiction work from a, from a vegan point of view. Um, that's great. That's really good. Um, so because of that, could you just give a day in the life of vegan Debbie doing food addiction today? Like what kind of stuff would you eat? Just because people are always asking, it's nice to hear a, a positive story from this side. Sure. Um, well, for breakfast, I have it's I have two ounces of veggie burger, which I, I actually make myself, but there are some that I could buy. I just like the ones I make better. And um, a cup of, I have almond milk. And because I can't have soy, that's a problem for me, a cup of blueberries. And then I just mix the blueberries and the, and the almond milk and the, and a a quarter cup dry of millet. And I mix that all together and have the veggie burger separately. So that's a breakfast and a lunch and dinner are pretty similar. There are three ounces of, I eat veggie burgers, but different veggie burgers. Uh Um, And then a cup for, for lunch, I, I have two cups of salad and a half a cup of millet. Millet is really the only, for me, I have stomach issues and that's the only one that works for me, but there's other things that are on my plan that I could eat if I, that are vegan. And, and, um, and then I have two tablespoons of a dressing that's an oil vinaigrette dressing that I make and a, and a cup of fruit salad at lunch. And then at, at dinner, I have two hot vegetables, like, a, you know, a broccoli, two cups of hot vegetables instead of two cups of cold, like a broccoli or something, the veggie burgers, three ounces. And I make a, a vegan sort of a, we had butter on our food, but a fat at night. And the only way that I could do that was to make a vegan sort of a butter that I got a recipe. It's sort of with the almond milk and just, you know, mixing it up together. Okay. And that, and you feel, um, I'm, I'm assuming you don't feel deprived and you feel satisfied and full. Absolutely. I always feel, I have never felt, I was scared when I, when I talked to my sponsor about taking out the, the metabolic at night, because I didn't know if I would be hungry, but it was, it was too much. It was upsetting my stomach and it was just too much food. So I have never in, in 30, what is it? 33 years almost. I have never felt deprived. Okay. And, and do you mind talking, you, you mentioned, um, 12 step, do you, do you mind talking a little bit about that? Because uh, I know that Phil really, part of Glen Bay, that was built into that. Yes, it was. We did our first step when we were in treatment and um, we had to read it to everybody. And I went there during the summer. So there were a lot of people there in the summer because teachers had the summers off and everything. And so I had to read my first step to like 30 something people. And, <laughs> and that was a lot. But I remember when I was finished, I looked up and I was crying and I, you know, I had written, you had to write what you ate, how you felt before, during, and after, and as much as you could remember. And I remember writing all that and looking up after I had read it. And I thought if I could have changed this, I would have, 
you know, and that's when I knew I was powerless and it was very powerful for me. And then after I got out, I worked with a sponsor and, and, you know, continue to work with a sponsor, but, you know, having gone through the steps, making amends and doing all that, I, I don't think without working some sort of a support program, you know, whatever the choice for anyone is that it's possible unless, you know, it's like they say in AA, if nothing changes, nothing changes. So I would be that person who would go back out and eat if I didn't change my attitudes and behaviors. So is, is part of your program, like, do you, do you have a sponsor that you talk to every day or like, what does, what, what does that look like today? Your recovery today from that perspective? I have a sponsor that I commit my food to. I do it on a weekly basis. And um, that's what works for me. I eat the same thing every single day, just about. So, and I'm happy with that. You know, I mean, with certain, within certain different changing, you know, different vegetables and stuff, but mostly the same thing. And if I have issues or problems, I I literally have so many 12 step people and so many people in recovery in my life that, you know, I'm grateful. I I have people to talk to um, and I have never not committed my food in all these years because I believe that I need to remain not in control of my food in order to, you know, to stay in recovery. Because as soon as I start to make a decision by myself about my food, I'm, I'm in trouble. You know, I, I knew somebody who went at the time that Glen Bay was, was really, um, was just starting or whenever I went there, there was the willow and the willow had a lot of the same things. It was a treatment oh. center that believed in no sugar, no flour. And the food plan was similar. And I know somebody who went there and she started, she took an extra green bean that wasn't in her cup. And then eventually she was eating cookies and binging. And I don't know if she ever got a recovery back. And that really made a, you know, it made an impression on me that I need to keep doing exactly what I'm doing in order to, to stay where I am. Yeah. I mean, she broke a rule and, and, you know, you could make the argument that there's no physiological reason that she would have binged from that, you know, one extra bean, but breaking that rule, the psychological, you know, 12 step programs really give a nice psychological barrier from that kind of thinking. And it looked like she broke that rule. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's a very good illustration. I'm really interested to know, Debbie, you know, how does your recovery look different today versus in those early days? If you, yeah. I mean, if there are any clear differences at all, that kind of thing, because I think that's one of the big questions that people, right. They get early on days and we are always like, eh, it's going to look this way, but it's not always going to look this way. It will change. And so I was just wondering if you could shed some light on what it looked like then versus what it looks like now. Well, I'm a little bit more mature, which I'm grateful for in a lot of ways. But I think in the beginning, after I got out of treatment, it seemed like I spent so much time preparing my food and getting it ready. And, and it just seemed to take forever. And now it just fits into my life. It's, you know, there's an, it's been a long time and it's just a, a comfort and it's a, I wouldn't dream of going near any kind of food without a cup and a scale and doing what I'm supposed to be doing. And I think also there's a serenity and a peace in the early days. I think I felt like somehow food was going to jump into my mouth and spoil my recovery all by itself. And I, I, you know, I knew logically it wasn't, but I was very, very terrified of losing my recovery for, you know, a lot of the beginning years. And now I have an attitude of, you know, unless I mess up, nobody can force feed. Nobody's ever force fed me, you know? And, and I think there's a a confidence that I'll get what I need. You know, I can, I'll figure it out. You know, there were times when, you know, it was, I had, I had, um, it was, I think uh, in 2011, I had brain surgery and I was determined that I wasn't going to lose my recovery because I had to go into the hospital and have brain surgery. And, And I remember planning and and getting everything. I made all my food to go to the house. Now it affected the part of my brain that 
is the motion sickness part. So I was nauseous a lot. And there may have been meals that I missed because I physically couldn't eat, but I did not eat any hospital food. And I brought my food, my sister, I put my sister in charge of it and I brought my food and they were like, nobody's ever brought their food. And I, and I, I just kept saying, I think I must've told even the housekeeper that I was a food addict, you know, just to make sure nobody gave me anything that I wasn't supposed to eat. But I think coming through things like that over the years made me realize that it's possible. You know, if you plan, you it's possible. And in the early days, I didn't have that behind me. I thought, oh, what happens when, you know, when I get married, what, how, what will I do? What if my sister gets married? How will I handle the, you know, the feed, the bride, the cake? How will I sit at the head table? And you know what? It all worked out. You know, I weighed and measured my food when my sister got married at the head table. When I got married, we skipped over the feed the cake part. And, you know, and even when I got, you know, later on, years later, when I got divorced, would I make it through? How would I be? And I did, you know, and those are the gifts is, you know, of staying in recovery shows you that it's always possible to stay in recovery if you work for it. I, I got to say, I am so impressed that even at the hospital, like that's, that's actually a fear that I have that should I end up in the hospital, you know, you, they're, they're going to give you garbage. Like that's the, when I was an intern, I remember just, I just ballooned out because I ate the, the, the hospital food and there you are, you actually made somebody bring you food every day. That's amazing. That's very impressive. That That's, I mean, that's recovery behavior. Uh, so before we move on, what do you say now when somebody says, Debbie, it's been like 30 years. Do you still need that scale? Actually, somebody said that the other day, you know, gee, I think after a while you'd be able to not weigh and measure. And I say, well, probably on a good day, I probably could figure out what a cup would be. But on a bad day when I'm emotional, a whole salad bar looks like a cup to me. So it's just better if I keep weighing and measuring because that it works better for me because it's my emotions get in the way of things. And my grandmother, before she died, when she was like in her 80s, and she said to me, it's been a really long time. Maybe now you should start introducing some of these foods into your recovery. <laughs> she was never going to understand. So I didn't really, I just said, okay, Graham, but it won't work for me. But, <laughs> you know, cause nobody would say that to an alcoholic, gee, maybe it's time you started introducing some beer into your, you know, your life. Yeah. It's the same thing. You know, Debbie, Dr. Donowski, you've been around for a while. Like you're, you're like part of the whole Case Shepard and Phil Wardell era, even though you, I guess Phil was a little ahead of you. Uh, and one of the reasons is because of your books. Uh, you, you have quite a prominence in the OA or Overeaters Anonymous community because essentially you got published by Hazelden. And uh, if I can just say that I, you know, with my book, Food Junkies, we approached Hazelden and uh, they were not believing of this food addiction model. And I'm talking about like 10 years ago, somehow you got them to publish this book. When was it 20 years ago, something like that? Like, how did you get in there? And good for you, because it, your book opened the doors, uh, in, in a sense, like major, Hazleton's a big time publisher, and a lot of people got exposure thanks to your book. I think the first one was the uh, Overeaters Journal. Anyway, no, the first, why can't I stop eating okay. was the first so one. Please tell us the story. And how, how did you make that happen? Well, it took eight years. When I got out of treatment, I did not want to forget what I learned. And I wanted myself who might someday be in trouble to remember everything I needed to remember to stay in recovery. So I wrote, why can't I stop eating? And for eight years, I sent it to Hazelden first off. They said, no, 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 not doing food books and sent it to a bunch of other publishers. No food addiction. It's not possible. I got the letters back that said, it's not possible to be addicted to sugar then this was when Oprah had lost all her weight and she was doing a diet book. So how do you compete with Oprah? And I wasn't trying to compete with Oprah. I was just 
approaching it from a different way. And so I tried Hazelden again. And this time, I don't know, I forget what the reason was. They weren't going to publish it. And I gave up after eight years of being rejected. I just said, you know what, maybe there's something here. Maybe I'm not supposed to do this. I can't do this anymore. It, it, you know, sometimes I'd get these rejections and I'd cry. And I thought this is bad for me because I can't have people telling me that being addicted to sugar isn't possible because what's that going to do to my recovery? So I gave up and I, I was teaching as an adjunct at Sacred Heart University. And I knew that my mentor there was going to retire. And in order for me to get a full-time job, I needed to have a PhD. So I went into an online PhD program and we had the, the, it was, it was online most of the time, but we had an orientation and I met with these two women and I, it was a get to know you session. And I said, oh yeah, you know, I wrote this book, but I have nothing to do with it. You know, I'm done. It's over. And they said, well, you know, the president of Hazelden goes to this school and we just met him. So why don't you send it to him and tell him that we said that he should look at it. And I, I was so devastated at that point and so tired of this book and just, I, I gave up and I said, well, all right. Cause I really truly believe you're led to do what you're supposed to do. It was only my, my spiritual part of me that said, send it off. And I never expected to hear anything. I thought, okay, he was nice about it. I'll pass it along. And I thought that's the end of it. And I'll never hear anything. And it must've been six months later when an editor said, oh, we love your book and let's, you know, I'd love to publish it. And I couldn't believe it. I did, I did not believe it. <laughs> and then I got, you know, I, I went through all the steps of getting the book published and, you know, all the red marks and making all the changes and doing all that. And I still didn't believe it until I held the book in my hands. And yeah. actually the funny thing is this year, I think in September, it goes out of print because it's been in print for 22 years. So they're, they're taking it out of print because they are not doing food books anymore. They merged with the Betty Ford and they're not doing them anymore. Oh, well, so you got, uh, you got in the window of it, but you know, like uh, Hazelden approved literature is in the 12 step world. It's gold, you know, it's, it's neck. There's the big book, you know, and then there's Hazelden approved literature. So mm-hmm. you really uh, introduced a lot of people and hopefully, I mean, I can't believe that they're there. That seems like a real regressive step that they're stepping back. I mean, I don't know if your book was a bestseller. I mean, it had to have been because everybody had that book or talked about it at least at a particular time in OA. I don't know how they can't see that even just on that basis alone, it's worth um, continuing to publish it. Well, I, what I plan to do, because I, I, I know it's going to go out of print. When it goes out of print, I'm hoping that I have a sabbatical in January to work on, a, on a, an academic book, but I'm also hoping to work on a sequel to that book and oh, good. hope that it'll get published. I don't know if it will, but I'll yeah, try. But- by somebody else. Yeah. So anyway, uh, that, that was your first book. Um, can you, for people who aren't aware of your stuff, um, can you just give a little bit of uh, what that book is about and then how the next one came on the scene? Sure. That, well, that book is basically the food plan and, and all the attitudes and behaviors and figuring out whether or not you're a food addict. And just, it's the starting point. You know, it, it really is. That was the program. It's a, it outlines a program that works for people who are food addicted. And then after I had written that one, um, and that one was the, why can't I stop eating? Right. Okay. So right. that's the how to book. Cause a lot of people ask us, what should we do? So that's a useful one to just say, have a look at this book just as a starter, mm-hmm. especially if you're open to 12 step. Right. And then the overeaters journal, they actually asked me to write because that people were wanting some sort of a, a, a journal writing experience to go with, why can't I stop eating? So that, that goes with it. You know, it takes you step-by-step step how to, how to figure out what foods you're addicted to and, and, and all that. And then 
Locked Up for Eating Too Much is just, it's my story. That one's actually out of print now too, but that's my story of when I was in treatment. It goes through every day, day one, day two of what I went through. Uh Okay. And then uh, let me see what was after that. The Emotional Eater's Book of Inspiration. Yeah, that's a daily, that's, that's actually not just for food addicts. That's for people who are struggling with food and just, there's a, a daily reading of things that, you know, different things that they can do to nine, there's 90 different things they can do to move forward and figuring out how to live sanely with food. Okay. Okay. And so then you're the, why can't my child stop eating? That was a more recent one, right? Can you uh, talk a little bit about that? Well, yeah, I, I actually was, Hazelden was done doing um, food books by that time. They've been done for several years. And I was pretty angry about some of the things that I was seeing because I also, in my academic life, I researched food advertisements and I was pretty angry about some of the things that I was seeing as far as children's, you know, junk food being advertised to children and things like that. And I remembered when I, you know, there, there was a lot of attention about bullying. and, And I remembered as a, as a child, I was probably the only the only heavy child in, in my entire school, you know, when I was in grammar school, when I was in middle school and when I was in high school, maybe there was one other and that was it. Yeah. And I was bullied and I was bullied really, you know, viciously, but they didn't do anything at that point. Those years, you know, they didn't even call it bullying. And I wanted to write something that would help that child that I was, you know, because I never had children. I, I knew I couldn't manage children. I just didn't have that in me. I, you know, I, I, up until probably now, which I'm much too old to have children, but up until now, I would never have been able to care for a child and raise a healthy child because I needed to go through so many things in my life in order to be able to do that. But I wanted to help children. And I I knew what it was like to be that overweight child who, you know, I, I got mixed messages. I was raised by food addicts and there were mixed messages in my family. And I, I knew what, the solutions to those things were now all these years later being in recovery. And so I really wanted to write something that was directed at parents because I had had some people ask me after, why can't I stop eating? You know, what about my kid? Could my kid be a food addict? And so I wanted to really, and, and luckily Century, central recovery press was, you know, they're, they're the second, they're the up and coming beyond Hazelden and they were willing to publish it. Oh, good. So for folks who are listening, because like me, I, I, I seem to attract many parents probably because I do have young children and I talk about that a lot. So for anybody listening, who's thinking, Hey, maybe I want to get this book, you know, why can't my child stop eating? You know, would you be willing to kind of give just an overview of, you know, what are some of the things that we should be looking for? Like, what are the red flags we should be looking for and how can we start to shift the tides as they may, you know, maybe that we don't end up recreating many ourselves. You know, that's one of my big fears. I have two daughters. Like I, I don't want my food issues to be their food issues. So, I mean, what, what can you tell us a bit about that? I think it's really the most important thing is awareness. You know, if, and I'm sure you don't do this, but I've seen people you know, say, well, you know, if you eat all your vegetables, you'll get dessert. Well, you've already (laughs) set the dessert up to be the more valuable food than the vegetables. And you've already made a big statement about how bad vegetables are that you have to get through it to get to the dessert, you know? So it's, it's really about being aware, you know, and what, when they're, there's so much that's out of parents control, but when the children are home, 
what are they watching? What are they, you know, because the food advertisements, and I literally have studied, I would say probably at least a thousand food advertisements, not all of them directed at, at children, but you know, these food advertisements, they show these young, healthy, energetic children eating this junk food and then running around playing sports. And it, it doesn't work like that. It's a magical world where, you know, I call it, and I'm working on a book where I call it happy eating. It's, it's the idea that there are no consequences when you eat this food. And the more that children are exposed to this, the more that they believe it, you know? So it, I think, and then a, a big, big red flag is using food to deal with emotions. You know, that, that, oh, you're, you know, when, when I was a kid and you went to the dentist, it was, you know, you got a lollipop when you were done going to the dentist. How did that make sense? But it was like, you had this emotional experience and here's your sugar to make it better. And so anybody who's using sugar or any sweet thing as a reward is really setting their child up to look at food as more than just nourishing their bodies. You know what? I just want to ask you. So, so I totally get what you're saying. Now, I often hear an alternative uh, thought here, which is, well, if you demonize sugar, then then you're setting them up to um, feel um, afraid of sugar. And so, so not that it's a reward, but that it's we shouldn't make them fear it. So, what do you say to that criticism? Oh, I agree. I think we should just make it a, a, a non-issue. I don't think I think there should be no emotions around food, either either fear or or love. I, I think it, it needs to be food is made to nourish our bodies. And I think that that's, you know, maybe educating children that when you eat vegetables, this is what happens in your body. When you eat sugar, this is what happens in your body. You don't have to say it's bad or it's wrong or, or anything. You know, I mean, I think it's really taking the emotion out of food. Okay, but it's Halloween and kids says, I want to go out and get my candy. So, so how are you going to deal with that without demonizing this bag of poison that they're going to be bringing back? <laughs> you know what well, I mean? Well, I, I think that you can. I mean, I'm not saying you shouldn't eat any, you know, kids shouldn't ever eat anything. What I'm saying is, okay, have fun and do what you're going to do. And then little by little, you know, that that you can't eat it all and have one or, you know, moderation. This is a, an opportunity to teach your child moderation. This is an opportunity to teach your child that, you know, gee, there's also an apple. Some people give out apples for Halloween. Some people give out different things and, you know, just understand what's going to happen in your body when you eat these different things, make them aware of it. You're not saying it's bad. You're saying what's happening to you. And is that what you like? Is that how you want to be? I'm assuming you're figuring that these are kids that are not yet food addicts because you wouldn't preach moderation to a kid that. Right. I'm not, I, I've read much of what I've read and I, I know you probably would know better than I would, but much of what I've read has said that they're not really food addicts when they're quite that young, unless they've really overeaten to the, like I was a food addict, I believe because I was given so much sugar and I ate so much sugar early on, but I think that unless it's triggered, you know, unless that switch is really triggered by eating massive amounts, which it could be if they're food addicts, then I think that's a different conversation. Yeah. Yeah. I really like to stay curious with my kids. And it's such a good point that you bring up Vera, like Halloween, where we stay really curious. My kids do the switch, which thing, right? So they go, they do their trick or treating, they pick, you know, five pieces or whatever. It's, it's usually a very small amount that they keep. And then they leave their buckets out and the switch, which comes in the night, right. And they get like art supplies <laughs> or they get little games or whatever it is. But my kids certainly are the ones that, I mean, we still have Christmas candy sitting on top of our refrigerator. Right. And we've been through how many oh. other candy centric sugar centric holidays 
and they just don't care about it. But I think that's come from like what you've been saying, like we're not demonizing sugar, but we're certainly not like, and now you get a lollipop because you finished your vegetables or, Oh, Hey, you did a really hard thing. Here's, you know, a scoop of ice cream. Um, it's more of that curiosity, like, Hey, when you eat the candy and it makes your stomach feel yucky, is that really what you want? Or yeah. Would you prefer to eat meat and vegetables for dinner instead of whatever. So I, I fully agree with you, Debbie. And and if that's what's in your book, then I think anybody listening who has children, you need to go get it and read it because this is exactly how we need to be raising the next generation is, you know, this awareness, because I don't think every kid is a food addict, just like every adult is not a food addict, but we do need to write like the number one risk factor is exposure. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So in that respect, the number one risk factor is parents and, and hopefully, like you said, their awareness, but in, what if they're food addicts, like your parents were? That's, that's a, a very big focus in the book is looking at your, ad, your own attitudes and behaviors and seeing what you're saying to your children and looking at your eating habits. Because I, I can remember in my parents, they tried really hard to, to do what they thought was right. You know, get, get me into this diet program, tell me to lose weight. And yet I could hear one or both of them eating potato chips at night or, you know, eating all these other things at night or, you know, things that were hidden. And so that mixed message, you know, it really is true that we, we follow what our parents do, even if we say we're not gonna, a lot of times we do. And, and I think another important thing to mention is also there are different ways that kids can have rewards and it doesn't have to be food. You know, this is the, the, uh, an amazing opportunity to teach children about ways to nurture themselves without using food, which I didn't learn until I was way into recovery, you know, like for example, well, for, you know, a hot bath, a hot shower, a re- reading a, bo- a good book, time alone by, you know, taking a walk for me, it's spending time with the horses. You know, it, it just depends on what you're interested in. Right. Okay. And I don't think we should underestimate either, like the power of a hug. Like, I think for me growing up, I never, right? Like there was never any physical love or like verbal, I love you's any of that, right? So what did I do? I had to go to the food, but I do know like with my children intuitively, like I just want to love them. And every time they're, you know, whether they're happy or sad or whatever, I know that we hug a lot and they will come, right? They'll just randomly come up and just be like, I want to snuggle or I want to hug. And I feel like that in and of itself, when we can write the oxytocin and all of that, now they are figuring out how to co-regulate with you know, hopefully people who are regulated emotionally, but also to ask for what they need and right where we would show up and ask for the candy because we didn't know how to express what we needed. They can show up and say like, listen, I just need some affection. So just plain plain out attention. Yes. You're going to listen to me while I whine about something that happened in my (laughs) day. Yeah. You know, especially if you're going through something like uh, the bullying thing that you talked about, Debbie. And, you know, I'm, when you talked about that, I thought about uh, my own experience. In, in our generation, we called it teasing. Mm-hmm. Get teased a lot. Oh, my God. How could that be teasing? That was bullying. Mm-hmm. Right out. And I bet when you went home crying, you didn't have fa- family that listened to you. No, they said, don't cry. Don't cry. Yeah. That's what, that was my message. Don't cry. Don't let them show you that it bothers you. Yeah. Yeah. And then I was given food. Right. Anything else that you can say about how we can protect our children? So, I mean, you're using books as an information tool, but do you have like a sort of commentary about what can we do to protect children from this? Like you said, the advertisements, the, uh, the, basically the 
food philic environment, sugar philic environment that encourages people to eat sugar. I think talking to, to our children is a really big thing about, you know, we're looking at this, this, what's being shown in this ad, but is it real? You know, they, it's, it's breaking it down and saying, you know, if this kid ate all this sugar, how do you feel when you eat too much sugar? And do you think that this kid would really be able to run around and jump like this? Or do you really feel happy after you eat sugar, you know, take it and say, is this really how it is? And, and make the, lead the children into understanding that what they're seeing is not necessarily the reality of it. You could be happy without eating that certain food, or you could, you know, you, there are other ways to make yourself feel better besides eating. You don't have to have food every time you're with your friends, you know, breaking down all the things that are a part of those ads, but, you know, and it does take time and maybe limiting that to just watching with parents so that they understand you know, so that you can go through that because the amount of food advertising on children's commercials is hmm. unbelievable. And they did a study not so long ago where they they looked at the difference between when a child saw an ad that had a, a normal weight child in it eating these foods and then a, a heavier child eating these foods. And they really be- more believed that eating the, the, the children who saw the normal weight person child believed that the foods didn't weren't harmful, that they wouldn't get heavy from eating them, that there was no danger yeah. where it was different. So, and, and you don't see heavier children in food advertisements for junk food. That's, that doesn't fit. That doesn't go together. Yeah, that's right. Why would they show us the dangers? Mm-hmm. <laughs> Why would right. they show us the dangers? No, no, we have to sell the, the positive version. That's right. So your your um, uh, work, I, so you, I think mainly your message is through your books, um, uh, but I think you also do some coaching or some kind of work like private uh, stuff as well, don't you? Not not anymore. I used to do uh, workshops, but I, I have stopped because <laughs> there's too, too many other things to do. And I really wanted to focus on my writing more. So I really do help through my writing. And, and with my teaching, I actually teach a class at Sacred Heart called, um, that's, that's food advertising It's studies and advertising. And we talk about food addiction in the class. I teach online. So we, you know, they, they read information about food addiction and, and I, and I also teach, um, magazines and body image to talk about body image. And so studies and self-help books, those are all the kinds of classes where I really feel like that's the generation that has really, they're, they're the turning point generation at this time where they're the ones that are going to say, Hey, you know, look at that ad. And do I really believe that? Because they're at a point now where they've grown up with it and now they're questioning it. So it's a real opportunity. Yeah. Okay, good. Have you had any resistance to your message uh, over the years? Oh yeah. It took eight years to get the book published. Yeah, <laughs> yes. Um, yes. Yeah, yeah. There, there is, I, I think there's still people out there who just really don't want to believe that it's possible to be addicted to food, you know, um, that, and I think it's really for decades and even centuries at this point, we've been shown, you know, I mean, there was a slogan not so long ago, bake somebody you love. Oh my God. So we've been shown that those cookies, that candy, all that food is love. There's actually an academic book called food is love. And she studies how, you know, through the decades, we have been taught that we're going to make people feel better if we bake sugar filled foods for them. And so those people don't necessarily want to believe that we could take that too far and be addicted to it. 
you know, and so it's, it, there's a lot of resistance. And I believe that the food industry, you know, the, the fast food industry, the, the junk food industry, I believe they're very powerful. And I'm not sure that message will ever make it into mainstream to the degree that it needs to be there. But that doesn't mean we stop fighting. It just means that, you know, it's, there's always going to be resistance. I, I believe. What kind of experience have you had of resistance other than it took you eight, eight years to get attention? Well, even now, I, I actually did some research. Um, I did an article. Um, it was studying. It was on binge eating disorder and food addiction behaviors in cereal yogurt and cereal yogurt. One other thing I can't think of right now, but in breakfast foods, it was about breakfast foods and oh, bread, cereal yogurt and bread, and it was about breakfast foods. And nobody's really interested, even in the academic world, they're not so interested in publishing. Something that says that, you know, there was one of the comments because it's peer reviewed. Yes. One of the comments that I got back was, you know, food addiction doesn't, they didn't believe in food addiction and I'm still trying and I will still continue to send it out, but the resistance comes in many different forms. I did get one published. And so I'm going to try to get it published in that same place again, just to get it out there. So people are aware. Yeah. It it just reminds me of my experience where um, I just get kept being told this is a niche area it's it's too unusual it's too weird and of course how can it be but yeah so i guess it's more through neglect or or not being noticed as opposed to somebody outright saying that you're wrong just mm-hmm. in the academic world it's true it's it's if it's it's peer reviewed they can just say i don't want it's it's not valid <laughs> right yeah uh, do you think there's been any change though since your early days until now like in terms of public and scientific acceptability Absolutely. I I think that in those early days, I don't even know that there were so few scientific studies there, you know, there were so many things that weren't in existence that are today. I mean, even the Food Addiction Institute, the fact that that exists, you know, is, is amazing and all the work and, and then there are still treatment programs. And I think that there is some confusion though, you know, the way that people throw around the term food addiction, I think that, you know, there's still work to be done, but I think that there has definitely been progress. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I, yes, progress. Unfortunately, the thing is, is that it goes, it comes and goes like Glen Bay closed down. So in that sense, there was a regression, but we're seeing more and more people like Molly, um, like, like what I call the next generation who are pushing the uh, concept of food addiction forward, at least outpatient wise. So it is kind of a little bit of my, in my experience. Yeah. Yeah. So I would love to hear how you landed because I know you you are very involved with the Food Addiction Institute. And I believe, and I don't know if this is still true, but I believe you were very involved with Shift, which used to be Acorn. So can you talk a little bit about like how you ended up doing that work? And I mean, it seems like it's like this natural progression of advocacy work for you. So I'm, I'm just curious to know um, what that looked like for you. Sure. Um, when After I had been out of Glen Bay for a few years, they decided to hire regional marketing consultants. And I had got, I did seminars around the area about Glen Bay and how food addiction and, you know, and, and so I did that. And then years later, when I found out that shift was looking for, cause my background is also marketing and PR. And when I found out shift was looking for someone and they wanted somebody to write their newsletter, I jumped on that because I, I live that. And, and acorn is, is a direct result. And then now shift of what was done at Glen Bay. I mean, there are some changes, but it was basically about the same thing. 
And then I started doing that. And then eventually it just turned into more. uh, I think they had wanted somebody full-time and I couldn't, I have, I mean, I teach and that's my full-time job. So I was sort of moved into the food addiction Institute and, and it's just, it's what I do. It's just how I live. So it's, it, you know, I'm, I think it's wonderful to be able to make people aware of food addiction. It's, it's much, much needed, you know? Yeah. I was going to say, it must be nice to at least have some sort of outlet where you're very good at what you do. And then to have like a platform where people aren't necessarily coming at you and and giving you these peer reviews of like, this is, there's no such thing. In fact, you have an audience that's ready and willing to hear what you have to say. Yeah, I bet. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. So in thinking about that, you, you mentioned you're going to take a sabbatical and you're going to be writing an academic book, but maybe even a second part to that first book, book that you wrote. Can you speak a little bit about what that is? I mean, are these, is this what's up next for you as far as progression in the food addiction recovery kind of world? Yes, I'm I'm very excited about the academic book, which is it looks at the the food addiction behaviors in food advertising. And so it, it is directly related to food addiction. And in the first chapter, I actually talk about the controversy about in the medical literature and how, you know, it's not nobody says 100 percent that, it, you know, all the different things. And then I go in to examine the behaviors in the ads, you know, about the different messages And then the, so that's the academic book. And then the other book, which would be, why can't I stop eating 30 years later would be talking about all the lessons that I've learned, you know, and and the first, first and most important of those lessons is food addiction is real because when I first came in, I didn't believe that food addiction was real. And, and I had an experience that really when early on in recovery, I didn't, for some reason, I just didn't think to even read the label. And I had a half a cup of canned peas and I remember waking up and feeling just like awful. And I it was, I was young and dumb. I was, you know, in, in graduate school and I left the can of peas, covered it and put it in the refrigerator. I know you're not supposed to do that. And, and I, I thought, I feel horrible. Am I going back to where I was? Cause it was very, very early on. And I looked and they had sugar in them. So I never doubted from that time on that I would, you know, what would happen to my body. And that was just, I mean, it was a half a cup of peas one time. And the way that I felt the next morning was horrendous. And I never doubted, you know, from that moment on that there was that food addiction was real, but, you know, not everybody has that experience. And I think it's so important that people know it is real, you know, and that real people are affected by it. And so I'm hoping that that will be the first and main lesson of that book. Yeah. And, you know, Molly, if I can just jump in uh, the, 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 your other book, the one that you're 30 years later, like your, your personal experience about that and, you know, the peas. Uh, shows it's a real phenomena and and it made a big change. You lost uh, like a significant amount of weight. So that's the message then. But 30 years later, you maintain that weight loss. And that's not a message that you hear in the medical world. Like I was saying earlier, the medications that are out now that people are going, oh my God, this is so exciting, 50 pounds lost. You have to stay on that medication the rest of your life in order to maintain that weight loss. And, And there you are, you have maintained your weight loss 30 years. And instead of doing meds, you've been doing a program every day and you have to maintain that. So, you know, people listening, you got a choice. You can do the meds and pay the money and do all that, or you can do this and you will maintain that weight loss. Mm -hmm. And I think that's the message you're going to give with this part two of that book. Absolutely. I couldn't have said it better. Well, there you go. I, I jumped in anyway. 
(laughs) Sure. Absolutely. So we ask everybody a signature question. And so, um, that's what I'd love to ask you right now, Debbie is, uh, what would you tell a younger version of yourself about food addiction, food addiction, recovery, this journey that you've been on for the last 30 something years? That it, that food addiction is real and there is hope. I think I, I was so, you know, early on and I tried so many, even though I was 23, when I got into recovery, I was so hopeless. And I think just there is hope would be probably the most important thing. And there are other people like you, you know, that's the, I didn't, I never, I thought it was just me and I was alone in my world. And, you know, the life that I have today is absolutely amazing. And I'm so grateful, you know, now I get to work with other people like me, not just, not just meet them, you know, and, and that's a gift. All right. Well, thank you so much, Debbie, for uh, Dr. Donelsky for uh, speaking with us. And uh, please, please uh, check out her books. I'm really looking forward to your advertisement academic book. I'm like, when is that coming out? I I still have to get somebody to publish it. So I'll let you know, though. (laughs) Yeah, right, right. Yeah, I'm really looking forward to it. I think that's excellent information. Uh, Yeah. Anyway, thank you so much for uh, speaking to us today. And uh, folks listening, uh, it's possible after 30 years to lose that weight. And I, I can tell you from what I'm seeing, she looks like she's happy. She doesn't look deprived. <laughs> this is possible. Thank you so much. Thank you. Thanks for joining us this week on Food Junkies, Recovery from Food Addiction. Make sure to join our Facebook group, Sugar Free for Life Support Group, I'm Sweet Enough. You can subscribe to our show in iTunes or Stitchers. That way you'll never miss an episode. While you're at it, if you found value in this show, we'd appreciate a rating on iTunes. Or if you'd simply tell a friend about the show, that would help us out too. Don't forget to pick up your copy of Dr. Tarman's book, Food Junkies, which is available on Amazon. If you have any additional questions, both Molly and Clarissa are food addiction professionals and work one-on-one with clients. You can find their websites and email addresses in the show notes. Be sure to tune in every Friday when our new episodes drop. As Vera loves to say, the power is ours.